happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode 237. That's a very large number here on November 3rd, 2021. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, which is Montana State Virtual School, located on the beautiful University of Montana campus, right here in lovely Missoula, Montana, in the western part of Big Sky Country. And and joining me tonight, as always, good evening, Dr. West Fryer. Um, it's been two weeks. I'm, we're sorry that uh, we weren't able to to join you last week, but it's so great to see you tonight, sir. Great to see you as well, Jason. I am coming from Oklahoma City, where it is cool and a bit rainy. And I am, for seven more months, the Technology Integration and Innovation Specialist at the Cassidy School. And we had a really successful parent university last night uh, talking about online, online influencers and teen self-esteem. And today I'm actually, I'm a little sad. There's, there's a, some different things going on, but this is the last day of our trimester. And so um, I've got, well, today and I, I, I have sections two different days. So today and tomorrow are, are the end of the first trimester. So saying goodbye to these kids. And of course I haven't told the kids that I'm job hunting and, all that. So anyway, but it, it was, it's good. And man, I just, I have loved, you know, just the, the scratch coding, the computational thinking. And then this year I, I really need to write some blog posts, but the conspiracy theory moon, moon landing stuff has been so, so good. So anyway, it's a little bittersweet. So it's, it's happy, you know, and you got a room full of kids like, no, we don't want it to end. We don't want to, yeah, that makes you feel good, but yeah, it does a little bit, <laughs> little bit sad as well. Well, we're not just going to hear me, you know, talk about the, the day, uh, at school. What the heck is this all about, Jason? Do we even remember after two weeks, you know, yep, it's that, been a that's while. a really good question. Uh, you know, we aren't getting any younger, Dr. Fryer, but the good news is, is that, uh, we've been doing it so long. It's, it's at this point just process, right? So, um, Wes and I collect links throughout the week of, of news articles in the, the tech journalism world, and we like to shoot them through a little educational prism, in part because we like to discuss these issues and hope you as a listener or viewer get some insight on, on, on uh, educational technology in schools. And then secondarily, you know, understand that the larger tech environment does have a significant impact on schools. And that's certainly been true uh, in the era of COVID, but also it's been very true uh, uh, for a good 20 years now in K-12 schools. And tonight we're going to take a look at several topics, uh, Apple News, Google News, Microsoft News. We'll cover a lot of tech bases there. Uh, we talk quite often about social media. Uh, and software. And finally, uh, our kind of pet topic, which has been really going now since about 2016 or so, is the notion of the tech correction or things that are either happening now or will happen in order to change our relationship with technology. Um, Dr. Fryer, is there any place you'd like to start tonight? You know, I think I'd like to start with a, a tech correction article, actually. And this is a fantastic one. Unfortunately, it is behind a paywall for the Wall Street Journal. So if you don't happen to subscribe, um, maybe you'll just have to go with our summary. But uh, I put this one down under, actually, I think it's under social media. So, you know, sometimes you're, these can fit under multiple uh, categories. Um, our categories, this one, by the way, for tonight are Apple, social media, tech correction, Google, Microsoft software, and Geeks of the Week. So under social media, uh, we've got 
uh, Wall Street Journal, October 29th, how to fix social media. So the tech correction is about this coming, probably regulatory change that is going to happen because of so many different things that have taken place and continue to take place in the consensus that there seems to be between both liberals and conservatives in the United States that something needs to be done. This article is fantastic, and I have honestly just read about half of it, but there are, I think, 10 authors, um, Amy Klobuchar, uh, Clay Shirky, one of my absolute favorite authors, Nicholas Carr, who I'm not a huge fan of, but has, an, has a really, really good piece uh, arguing that social media should be treated like broadcasting and talking historically about radio. Um, Sherry Turkle, uh, who's just a phenomenal thinker. <laughs> Josh Hawley, who is a Missouri uh, legislator who uh, actually was, I think, somewhat positive about the January 6th events on the Capitol. But he argues about too much power in too few hands and presents that conservative side. Um, Renee DeResta, one of the foremost researchers on disinformation and weaponization of social media. Jared Lanier, who's very prominent in the Social um, Dilemma documentary that came out last year. Um, and others. I mean, it is incredible. So probably the best article that I have read to date on just the, the idea of regulating uh, tech firms. And it, it, I've heard people ask the question, you know, is the, the, you know, are the recent uh, testimony of Francis Haugen, you know, to that, like the tobacco big moment for big tech um, and, and perhaps not, but it really does seem like there's a lot of steam around the idea of having some kind of, of, of regulation. Hopefully that's going to be some privacy light legislation that is going to protect privacy. Um, but I really, really commend this article. And, you know, like, like I said, it's a, it's a wide range of folks. Clay Shirky has the book, um, here comes everybody, which I probably read in the mid to late 2000s. Um, and I haven't read anything by him in a while. Um, his like pulled out quote from his section is that the faster content moves, the likelier it is to be born on the winds of emotional reaction. And so one of the things that he is promoting is decide this idea that scale and speed, are, you know, we're not wired for it as people. Um, Anyway, I could go on, but that is just a fantastic article and I think well worth your time to explore. Um, and I don't know, what do you think, Jason? Is this, is this the, the big tobacco moment for big tech or, or is, I mean, obviously we haven't seen the legislation pass both houses of Congress to be signed by the president, but do you have any greater sense of what will be happening with tech well, regulation at this point? I mean, the thing I keep thinking about that every time someone drops big tobacco as as, uh, you know, your term, the big tobacco moment, the thing I keep remembering is that it took a long time for the United States to come to terms with big tobacco. Right. That there was a clear sense uh, as as early as the 1950s that tobacco was a, a problematic product. Right. And that there was a, a larger issue there. And. Um, one of the ways that, that it became complicated in the 80s and 90s when governments were starting to sue tobacco manufacturers that ultimately led to uh, the tobacco settlements uh, uh, that in the huge state funds that were created was that, you know, it, how can you dare say that tobacco is is the fault of tobacco companies when it's been long known since the 1960s that tobacco was 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 troublesome uh, for from a health standpoint and. 
that that I, I don't think the regulation and uh, accountability for big tobacco is necessarily a blueprint. But, you know, I think I do feel anxious sometimes, um, uh, impatient, maybe with the speed of which we seem to be having these conversations. But big tobacco if you if you believe the assumption that social media is problematic for whatever reason, big tobacco is probably not a very good metaphor for this in part because it's probably a lot bigger than big tobacco is, which means that we need to be patient with the processes as they play out. And um, I still don't really know what the answer to this is, but um, I do think that there is a lot of... Um, a lot of evidence to suggest that we may have to regulate ourselves first before government steps in and, and does it for us. And, um, you know, there's another example here. I'll just mention as a, a piece of this, The Verge uh, had a great article on October 25th called Facebook's Lost Generation. And that is about the fact that kids won't touch Facebook with a 10 foot pole and people under the age of 25 are just not Facebook people. And I have an example here. My niece, who is a, um, uh, a college student in Arkansas, um, she, uh, um, she is very active on Instagram. Um, and I can keep up with her there, but if she wants to get to her grandmother's, so that includes my mom and my sister's mother-in-law, then to do that, she has to post to Facebook. And what's really funny about that, she posts to Facebook, she's on Facebook, but the people that are giving likes to that are old people. So her uncle Jason and her grandma Annie, my mom, are, you know, that's where to get to some of those crowds, right? So the tools themselves may end up becoming less of a factor. And I, I know at least a dozen people that have less, left Facebook just in the last two weeks and probably 200 people that have left Facebook in the last two years. And by me left, I mean like either deleted their account or put their account in hibernation. Um, so maybe, maybe the Facebook part of this problem deals with itself, right? But the bottom line is, is that if we're expecting regulation to save us, it's probably not going to do it in time before before these tools, if if you believe they're doing damage, continue to do damage. And so, um, you know, I, I still think self-regulation and then what I think you and I have been very consistently preaching for a very long time, we have to help kids understand these tools so that they make great decisions about them. And that's probably not unlike a public health response, right? Like part of getting kids not to start smoking is explaining to them early that tobacco is bad for them. I'm not saying that we want the same strategy, right? Because it's a little more nuanced about what the dangers of social media are, right? But education and treating it as a public health problem, probably not the worst strategy. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I did really like in the Nicholas Carr portion of this article was the references, and I'm not super knowledgeable about certainly the Radio Act of 1927, um, but also the Communications Act of 1934. And, you know, this idea that, you know, in the time, lawmakers, engineers, radio executives, representatives of the listening public, you know, came together uh, to define broadcasting as a privilege, not a right. And, and so then they you know, said that there had to be a, the public interest in terms of, of licenses to, to broadcast. Now, I'm not suggesting that we should be all, you know, licensed to blog, licensed to tweet. But, you know, 
like I mentioned um, in the uh, Clay Shirky article, as far as size and scale, I mean, what is, there's many things that are unprecedented, but you know, the virality and the speed and the ability for individuals to be able to, you know, to wield such power and also for crowds to as well. Um, I've actually been listening and I don't have these, these podcast links, but I've, I've listened to some really uh, excellent shows talking about, well, cancel culture and talking about like the Dixie chicks back in the day. And I mean, some of this is like the internet. I mean, the way the internet's evolved and I think you're right. Facebook regulating Facebook is not going to solve quote unquote, all of these issues, but there certainly do seem to be behaviors um, specific to Facebook. I mean, the, the big thing is it's surveillance capitalism, right? It's data that's being sold and, and marketed. And, you know, the, the, the deal, and maybe it's kind of a deal with the devil uh, that we have in terms of, you know, access to free, free tools that, yeah. you know, we're trading, uh, we're trading our stuff, we're trading our data, we're trading our privacy. Um, and generally people, you know, seem to be pretty happy with that. So, it's a very thought-provoking read. It is. It is a bummer. I mean, I remember it wasn't that long ago, and I, part of what has happened is our school is now subscribing to, uh, not only to the New York Times but the Wall Street Journal, and then I'm paying for the Washington Post. So, you know, through school and then myself, I'm I'm paying more for journalism, which, by the way, is actually good in terms of like supporting journalists and yeah. and high quality journalism. Um, we've gotten used to you know, I don't know the, the, the free access, but yeah, I, uh, I think this is a great article and I, I still wonder, you know, it, in my future, uh, how the intersection of all this will play out in terms of teaching, but it just, it seems to be so important. I, I got to, to do a lecture at our high school uh, a few weeks ago that I might've mentioned because we have a group, um, that's an integrated, I guess, for juniors, U.S. history, U.S. literature. And anyway, they're studying big tech and, and got to talk about these issues a little bit with them. Uh, but it is something that is continuing to move forward. But, you know, based on the glacial speed of change or what can be glacial speed, you know, with our our uh, our Congress, um, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't seem like we should be holding our breaths for for imminent change. But I definitely, definitely think that privacy is important. We don't have a, a comprehensive privacy law here in the United States. Um, it'll continue to be interesting to see what happens with states, because as we've talked about, I think California and maybe I'm not going to say what the other state is, but I think there's someone besides Colorado, besides California, um, you know, passing some some privacy legislation. And then the question is like, well, is that sort of tide going to raise all boats or so, so to speak? So if folks have to comply with things in California. Is that going to mean that, hey, they're going to be, you know, providing that same sort of privacy level protection for everybody? So. Yes. Yep. Great questions. All right. Well, uh, where to next? We, we won't go down a 30 minute rabbit hole with just, you know, one article. So where, where would you like to, where would you <laughs> and like to break our streak, Wes? Oh, um, no. well, let's see. Let's maybe take, take some of these other social media and tech correction news. Well, first, uh, Facebook's broader companies known as Meta. I could not care less. Right. Uh, uh, it just doesn't seem like it fixes any of their problems. And, and it, it is a, it, it, for those of you that 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 uh, this was well, this was practically painted on the side of buildings. But Facebook uh, announced that their their uh, their larger company would would rename to Meta, and Facebook being one tool of Meta, 
Um, kind of like how Google changed their name to Alphabet and Google was one of the many companies that Alphabet owned. Um, I don't think this fixes any problems. In fact, if anything, I think it looks a little silly in light of the bigger problems that Facebook is facing, that it looks like a, 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 a I'm not sure if callous is the right move, but maybe a, 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 a somewhat uh, limited response to the broader problems that Facebook uh, uh, may, may be facing, but, um, you know, I, I would imagine that there are other products, which, you know, include, uh, some properties that, um, you know, are connected to Facebook, but not as an example, uh, Instagram, uh, Instagram may or may not have the same problems as, as Facebook, but changing the name to something else or trying to associate with Facebook may or may not help those tools. So any thoughts about meta? Yeah, I'll uh, I'll respond with with another article that's under that same headline. Again, sorry folks, it's the Wall Street Journal, uh, but it's Mark Zuckerberg sets Facebook on a long, costly path to metaverse reality. Um, a few weeks ago, I had shared some wonder links with my kids um, that Facebook had put out about this like virtual reality Zoom video conference, Zoom like you know video conference experience, and um, this idea of the metaverse. I don't, based on this article talking about what Facebook thinks they're going to spend and when they're pledging to spend and then the, the number of years they're going to be spending on it. I mean, it's kind of a ready player one world that they're envisioning and wanting to spend to. Um, I do think it might sound a, be a little tone deaf kind of at this moment. Um, but I think what it signals is that, you know, Facebook's a huge player. When you look at the graphs and I just, you know, I might include a link here in the Geek of the Week at the end for this, uh, put together some graphs of, you know, social media users. And, you know, Facebook is a is a behemoth. But what you just said, Jason, about, you know, younger users is absolutely true. Some of the Francis Haugen disclosures and, and, and articles that we've seen recently talk about how scared to death Facebook employees and, and leadership has been about losing the younger audience, you know, TikTok, Instagram. And I think the world has shifted, at least for the current administration, who knows what happens in 2024 and beyond. Um, but like, and I trust in terms of like the acquisition of, of Instagram, there's a, there seems to be a lot of sentiment that that was a bad thing. In fact, there's some, some in Congress proposing, you know, trying to turn that clock back and make them divest and whatever. I mean, that would be pretty extreme. But Facebook has a ton of money. And so Zuckerberg here is pledging that essentially he's going to and is right now working to bring the Ready Player One virtual world. And maybe I'm not making an exactly perfect metaphor there, but we're talking about augmented reality, virtual reality being able to live and work and shop and entertain and just do all kinds of things in very realistic, you know, virtual spaces. Uh, so I do think this probably could be like a distraction technique as well, which is not going to work. Um, but I see it as more just the commitment that Facebook has to, things that are far larger and bigger than social, than their current platform of Facebook. Um, and, you know, it's, it's wise of them to not just, you know, be stuck in what the innovators dilemma when they can't, you know, move beyond their existing product. Um, I think that they're going to, it doesn't look like at all they're going to get to 
put pull off an Instagram for kids, which they were really, really pushing for. Uh, and, and it's an open question about how they're going to, to try, try, try and draw the younger audience. So yeah, it, it seems a little silly to have a, have a name change, but I, I was in San Francisco in 2007 when I heard Steve jobs at the end of the iPhone announcement say, Oh, and by the way, our name is Apple. And we're like, okay, that's not a small thing. Um, you know, and because Apple is far more than a computer company. Yes, they put computers in all kinds of things, but we've, we've seen Google, you know, switch with Alphabet. And what you also wonder is if it might be posturing for possible, I don't know if is, investment's not the right word because that's when you don't invest in things. But like when you get split apart, you know, there are definite conversations that, you know, Amy Klobuchar in that article I referenced and others you know, are really promoting to say these companies are too big and they need to be split up. So who knows, but it doesn't, I don't think it's going to change your life or mine, you know, in, in the next couple of weeks, but the continued emergence of virtual worlds and the compelling um, features of those and, and the ways in which we're going to be drawn into them kind of seems inexorable or, or inevitable, you know, in terms of just the trajectory of technology. So don't count old Zuckerberg and meta out. I think even with some regulation, it's just a huge war chest of money that they have to, to do things with. And it's going to be interesting. Yep, absolutely. And then um, you want to talk about that article from the Financial Times about the loss due to iPhone privacy rules or is that yeah. right? This was interesting. This is October 31st, not behind a paywall from Financial Times. Uh, Snapchat or Snap, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube lose nearly $10 billion after the iPhone privacy changes. Uh, we reported here um, shortly after you know it happened and, and people started to collect data about it that when Apple changed this thing in the iOS to, do, to allow folks to say, do not track, like over 70% of people said, yeah, that sounds good. Don't track me. And so what this article is saying is that's yet a huge impact to the bottom line of these companies that rely on advertising and specifically targeted advertising. And so Sheryl uh, Sandberg, who's the chief operating officer of Facebook, said, quote, these iPhone changes meant that the accuracy of our ads uh, ad targeting decreased, which increased the cost of driving outcomes for advertisers, and then measuring those becomes more difficult. So, um, again, if you want to look at a graph, I just put this link into the chat. Scroll down and look at the expected Q3 and Q4 2021 revenue of these companies, comparing Facebook, which is over $60 billion, to YouTube, which is somewhere around 16 or 17 billion, Twitter, which is not even five. I want to say it's maybe two and Snapchat's one. So it's just unbelievable how much money Facebook rakes in. And, you know, I'm not losing any sleep or feeling sad at all for the companies. I'm not convinced that we've needed the kinds of, uh, of targeted tracking and, and the, the level of data collection that we've, we've seen social media companies and marketing companies, you know, of course want. And I think we talked maybe on a show at, at some point, I did some targeted advertising through Facebook a number of years ago. And it's probably been like five or six years ago. And it was, it was shocking <laughs> to see how specific I could drill down in geographic areas with demographics, with 
all of these different things. So again, we've said it before, I think Apple stand for privacy is really good. It's really needed in the market. And what I wonder is if Tim Cook and the folks at Apple are seeing these statistics going, holy cow. I mean, did they know that they were going to have such a market impact? Um, I think they're doing the right thing. And I'd love to see Android do that. But since they're a Google, you know, property, I think it's far less likely that we're going to see Android do something similar as far as the do not track. But maybe there's the third, there are third party apps to, to add to Android. I don't think Dr. Neifer and I are Android users currently. So we'll have to I'm not ask somebody users. else. Not I, have a, I have an iPhone or I'm sorry, I have an Android phone that, um, Oh, I would describe as a as a, a, a toy for me to play with, but that's about it. Um, and you know, the bottom line is that, you know, when you talk about the extraordinary largesse of finance in in big tech, you know, that is on the, you know, that is on the larger the backs of consumer privacy. And, um, you know, I've evolved in this a little bit. I used to be a little more comfortable with what Facebook and and uh, Google were doing with that because I felt like they at least gave you some tools, whereas there were other privacy uh, privacy risk uh, companies that were doing advertising that you never knew their name and never knew what they were doing and were tracking you in ways that you couldn't go and track, whereas you can always find that information out on Facebook and Google. But I come around to that on a little bit. And I have to say, like, I know what the risk is and I know what the implication of that is, but I've turned that off um, on my phone. Um, I, I, I've turned off the tracking on my phone, which I think is one of the beautiful luxuries of, of, of iPhones in 2021. I want to also pick up on something else you said, Wes, about the notion of, of targeted advertising. And, and I can tell you that I've advised uh, some small businesses and also some nonprofits uh, uh, on targeted uh, social media based advertising, online advertising. And I've myself used it for a couple of different projects, uh, uh, personal projects. I've also worked with some political candidates in doing that. And I have to say the tools are infinitely less powerful than they were just two years ago. And that's largely due to politics. Whereas I could probably, with me and my relatively limited skill set, not, uh, I I could probably figure out more, but, you know, I'm not immersed in this uh, uh, area. I'd be willing to bet that the tool sets were powerful enough that if you wanted to target an individual, you have to, you know, spray the spray a little bigger than that, but you could probably hit someone if you really wanted to, um, if you knew a, a lot about that individual. And that's just not possible anymore. Um, you know, there's still a lot of interesting things you could do. Right now, you can get on Facebook and say, I would like to target teachers that live in Texas, that live in larger cities, that identify as male that are also into um, the Houston Astros, right? And probably get a data set. You wouldn't know who they are, but you'd be able to target, um, uh, you know, those individuals. And that's a little less than you used to be able to do. Not not as much. I mean, according to this article, like you're, part of the, what's happening is advertisers are having to spend more because let's say you do want to target um, males, you know, you can't, you're going to have to spend twice as much. And if you want to reach 1500, you're going to have to try to reach 3000. And that's kind of what that article is saying. Hey, we've got three live viewers and I want to drop the link to our show notes in. We, since, especially since we missed last week, have so many articles, there is no way we're going to be getting to all these. 
And if you see a particular article or topic that you'd really like to see us discuss, please let us know and uh, we can take that into consideration here as we as we move into our second half of the show. Uh, do we want to pick up the under 18 removal? Did we talk about that one? Maybe not. I think that one carried forward from last year. Yeah, time. that's, yeah, that's, uh, uh, that's an interesting one. I think it's a smart one too. Um, Google allows, uh, current minors. So people under the age of 18 to fill out a form. Um, and there's a, there's a help page for it, uh, in this article from The Verge. And essentially, um, you can, Remove any, uh, image of, of someone under the age of 18. And the, the only exception to this is compelling public interest or newsworthiness, which is actually, I think, a legal standard uh, for that. But there's some caveats. Um, the, uh, the, uh, well, first, you have to be under the age of 18. You can't go and ask for if there's a, if a picture of you under the age of 18 and you're not 18. For example, I am not 18. And uh, if there was a photo of me under the age of 18, I want to remove. You can't do that. That's not what is allowed there. Um, and then um, I, I I think it's it's just a good sensible solution. I'm, I'm honestly surprised it took this long for Google to offer this. But um, I would, uh, you know, there are. Uh, and to be clear, it doesn't remove it from the web. It just removes it from the image search engine. And um, it's a good move. Absolutely. Let's see. Um, you want to shift a little bit to some Apple news? We've sure. Quite a few Apple articles. Have you, have you done the upgrade yet to my? I mind? did. Um, I was just typing about that in chat to uh, Peggy George, our chat moderator, and um the so i own two macs um i own a at home i own a a, a, a mac mini m1 and at work uh, i have a macbook pro a 2020 macbook pro m1 and i did different strategies at work um i had not uh or i had i had had the m1 for uh om- almost uh 10 months now and what I decided to do was just wipe and start over again with a fresh install because all the junk I'd installed on there to test the M1 chip was still on there. And it's, it's my, it's my primary work machine, uh, now. So I wanted to wipe and start over. So, uh, uh, last weekend I wiped it and there's a new process to do that. Uh, I would encourage you to use Apple Docs in case you are doing it the old fashioned way with the USB drive. There's a new way to do that that's actually pretty efficient. Um, so I wiped and started over again and, um, pretty solid. I did an in-place upgrade. So, uh, uh, I installed over the, um, the old version on my home, um, M1 and that's working pretty well so far too. Um, I, I haven't noticed any issues, but, uh, I do want to note that there are some people that are experiencing issues. Uh, Tom's Hardware had an article on November 1st saying that, uh, some older Macs, uh, these will be Intel Macs, they're not just not working in that something's wrong with them uh, OS-wise. They're bricked, which means they just don't work anymore. And um, this is uh, 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 2009. This would be Intel Max. Um, uh, and there doesn't seem to be any consistency to it. There's also in a couple of older ones uh, that, that have also appeared on forums. But basically what happens is it's something, something's weird with the firmware that, that uh, is both the charging and the battery based. And so the, 
the basically you can't charge the battery anymore and eventually it just dies. So um, there there's uh, the Tom's hardware notes. There's no rhyme or reason to this. Um, and that, uh, it's apparently iMacs and MacBook Pros and even Mac mini devices are susceptible to the program uh, problem. And of course, if it's still in warranty, you should go to, you know, immediately to, uh, Apple. If you have a genius bar available to you, take it there first. It's going to get you faster service. I would also recommend, however, even if your, uh, uh, laptop is not covered under this anymore, but it was a supported laptop with the upgrade. Apple's probably going to take care of you, uh, since it appears to be a software issue that is bricking, or the word I like to use is borking your, uh, your, um, piece there. So. Excellent. Um, let's see. What about this? We don't need the new MacBook Pro Lifehacker. What heresy is this you're putting into the show notes? Wonderful article from Lifehacker. And it actually, the reason why I put this in here is because it kind of echoes what Wes and I were talking about two weeks ago in the release of the new MacBook Pros in, in 2021. Um, but the, the bottom line is, is that, um, uh, if you are, if you are a regular power user, so you are a Wes or a Jason or a Peggy, the regular M1 Max released in 2020 are probably going to be good enough unless you are doing something that needs the graphical power. And so that's a lot of high-end video production or something that's super graphic int- intensive. But last year's M1 Max are so impressive, according to Lifehacker, that you really just don't need the new Mac. And they are substantially more expensive than their counterparts um, uh, in, in 2020. And as I've mentioned a couple of times um, uh, on the the, uh, the podcast, it, these are now available refurbished directly from Apple. And you could save sometimes upwards of two $250 on a, a machine that will be supported like a brand new Mac. Um, and get access to the M1 chip. And so, um, you know, we, we mentioned this when, when we were reviewing the new Macs a couple of weeks back, uh, the, based on the, the announcements, but there's a lot of wonderful features on those Macs. And sure, if I, if money was not a factor, sure, I probably would buy myself a, a 14 inch or 16 inch, uh, 2021 MacBook Pro. But if you're just doing this for daily use, the MacBook Air, is probably good enough to do a lot of tasks even very aggressive power users uh, would need to do. Absolutely. All right. And, hey, this article about uh, Google Drive has got to make you happy, you Google Drive-loving man. It does. Um, (laughs) uh, Finally, there is a native M1 uh, Google Drive desktop app for the Mac M1s. And up until this point, the Google Drive desktop app required some finicking to make it work. Um, and We're using extremely technical terms tonight. Yes. Uh, uh, you had to fiddle with it to get it to work correctly. And it worked. But for those of you like me that, you know, are using Apple hardware, but very deep in the uh, Google world, um, it's a wonderful update. Do you back up your entire computer, by the way, to Google? I still, it's weird because I, I'm not using backup and sync. And I think this is what created it. But when I log into my personal Google Drive. Um, over on the side, I've got my drive, you know, shared drives, and then computers. 
and I'm not backing it up. Do you still see that or do you, um, did you ever? I that? do, but I actually use the Google Drive for Desktop app as opposed to the Google Backup and Sync. And the way yeah. I do that, and this is, this is, uh, this is going to get down a rabbit hole, but let me see if I can make this 30 seconds or less. A uh, Google Drive for desktop is only available for a uh, non-personal accounts. And I love that because it, it doesn't store your whole drive on your desktop. It just streams it to you. And that's like Google drive file stream was back in exactly. the day. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's their new version of that. And again, not available for personal accounts. But what I do instead is that I have a, a, uh, I have some projects and small businesses that, that, that uh, have Google, uh, uh, services purchased for those domains. So I just have a master account that I call the knife drive, right? It's, it's literally called hashtag knife drive, right? That I share with my work account and then the small business accounts that has 99% of my stuff I, I would need to access on any computer on it. And so, um, I just use that to help stream that to, to my desktop. And it's worth the $6 I pay a month for that account. Okay, so this this is worth going down a bit of a rabbit hole as far as talking about the the educational impact. I had to power wash my school Chromebook this week, and it appeared to be because I had checked or left checked the offline data access uh, so that all of of my Google Drive was downloading. I guess if you if you're doing this for offline access for everything, um, anyway, because it was it. it I don't know. It said it was system and it's just, I think it's like a 35 gig hard drive for the Chromebook. Does that sound like a really small one? Anyway, um, this is, this topic is worth sharing with teachers and not assuming that people will just figure out. This has changed considerably, even the names of the applications that are used to do this. I think in general, most of our teachers will just use the Chrome browser, even though they're on a MacBook laptop, an M1 MacBook laptop. Um, and I, I tend to do that. At certain times of my life, I have used these applications. But for teachers who or educators, anybody who really like the, quote, finder level file manager style you know, management of files rather than doing all this in the browser. Um, the application that Jason's talking about is, you know, outstanding that used to be called Google Drive File Stream and, and now it's called the Google Drive Desktop Mac, right? Somebody saying that right? So yes. in addition to that, we have Backup and Sync, which is a backup program, but that is that is different. So you know, the bottom line is we want people to save stuff to the cloud and to put things into Google Drive. And I do recommend to our teachers, they at least consider an iCloud account and, and boosting that up because then everything that's in their documents and on their desktop ends up, if they check the box, you know, being backed up to iCloud Drive. So I've been doing that for a while. So yes, we can get into the weeds with all this. The bottom line is, and, and Peg, you mentioned, you know, the idea of, of wiping and reinstalling is, is kind of scary. Wipe and install. That is the safest way to do an install. And it's not only the safest way as far as being sure that your machine is, is, um, you know, malware free. Um, it's also the, um, it, it's also the best way just in terms of, you know, working in different places and you never know what can happen to your machine. And I think living a life that is 
you know, redundantly backed up and saved on the cloud. So anyway, those are definitely worth things understanding at a personal level, but they're also worth, you know, if you have an opportunity taking time to explain to teachers as well. Yep, and Peggy's absolutely. right. Yeah, the, the app that Jason's talking about is not for personal use. Backup and Sync is available for personal use, but you have to be using an enterprise account with Google to use what is now called Google Drive Desktop, which used to be called Google Drive File Stream. But yep. that, the killer feature is it doesn't download at all. It just indexes it and still lets you organize the files, but it, it downloads them on an as-needed basis. So it's really good. And then once you cover that uh, Apple support article about iMovie. Okay, so um, I published a new barbecue video this weekend, cooked a brisket, uh, and happened to notice when I was in iMovie, hey, there's this you know note saying don't put your, your stuff up in um, iMovie theater, which, you know, I don't know how many people have done that, but over the years, I think I probably have about eight or so different, different videos. So um, iMovie does not support the iMovie theater publishing option. And the app, which used to be available on Apple TV called iMovie theater is not available either. So what you have to do is basically just tap a button, send it to your iCloud uh, photos and if you're not using iCloud Photos, you want to enable that, or you could probably save it locally and do something else with it. But on the topic of backing stuff up, you know, my my practice is I have iCloud Photos on. All of my photos back up automatically there. I also redundantly, you know, have my, my Google Photos uh, backing up. I think I have to have the app open. So anyway, that doesn't happen as, as quickly. But um, if you've got stuff in iMovie, uh, theater, you, you need to get that moved over. And I'll tell the sad story that when was it called iWeb, you know, got finally taken down. Was that in like 2002 or I don't know what that was. But anyway, I had some content there that I didn't move move off. And I think some of those things actually are still on my old Mac G3 Yosemite tower that's over in the in the sunroom that my wife would love for me probably to throw away. But it is not a good thing to lose important photos, especially of your family or movies or anything like that. So back up your stuff, kids. You got to back it up. Yep. One way or I another. Will, I will also know just while we're on the themes of backups for just one second, I don't, I mean, I just store everything in Google Drive, period. And I, if I want it to remain in my life, I put it on Google Drive, period, end of story. So that's, that's the way I, I have to deal with that. Otherwise... Uh, well, and in part because I use different machines all the time. So. Didn't Google announce something, though, that they were going to start if, like, a file was really big and you hadn't done anything with it for a while? Is there any kind of deletion or anything like that um, that's happening for Google Drive's? I think it was that they were storing things. I remember something about this. I don't think it was quite there. Um uh, we'll have to look into that. That's a good question. Yeah. Peggy is really wise. She's saying she she's over backing up and probably having three copies of all her photos. But, you know, it's smart. Actually, I, I did too. I, I do marvel at, and this will we'll just gush Apple here. I will for just a moment. But, you know, they really do figure out some things that are hugely beneficial. But sometimes, I'm sure I'm not the only one, I'm slow to, to embrace them. One of them was iCloud Drive, and it took my son pulling up a file, you know, on his phone that had been on his desktop. I was like, how'd you do that? Oh my gosh, that's so amazing. Uh, and then, you know, the photos and being able to have all that backed up. 
I've myself done the arduous, you know, backup with the iPhoto library and I've helped our teachers do that before. And so it's just really, you know, yes, you have to subscribe and, and pay a little bit. Um, and we do for a little bit more storage, but it is so worth it and definitely makes the process of, you know, transitioning to an I, new, another iPhone, um, or another device exceptionally easy. So yay, Apple. But back up your your stuff one way or the other. And if Google Drive meets your needs, then awesome. That's fantastic. Yep. Okay, let's talk some Google stuff because I want to cover um, uh, a couple of interesting things that are going on here. First, there's a really interesting feature in the newest version of Android, Android 12, that allows you to do more to separate your work and personal life. This is from The Verge on October 21st. And this is such a clever strategy that... Um, uh, I think that Apple should copy this, and I'm sure they will, since that's what happens with both these platforms is copying back and forth. But um, essentially, there's a, a feature called Google Work Profile. Uh, it's a tool for Android, which allows you to hide work apps and data with the flip of a switch, and I think it's the, the pull-down lampshade menu. And a current, according to uh, the company itself, that... Um, it was initially, uh, or it is initially available only on managed phones. And so that's an Android phone that your, your, uh, uh, institution or company or, uh, business issues to you. And it allows you essentially to, to create kind of a barrier between work and personal life. And so if you're carrying the one phone with you and it happens to be a work phone, but you do personal stuff on there, it allows you to separate that out. But Google said it's going to come, uh, to, uh, anyone using Google Workspace in 2022, which means that if you have a work account on Google Workspace and you want to, uh, do that flip switch, um, then that's great that it, that it will be available to you even if you, um, don't have a managed phone. And, uh, apparently they're, um, uh, uh, also working on some, some ways to essentially hide the data from each other's apps. So if you, uh, work data and personal data will be segregated. And I've been talking about this for literally years. The, the, the first time I did a digital distraction presentation, this has to be four or five years ago when I first started talking about this, uh, at conferences and in teacher presentations. And my advice always has been that it's perfectly okay to delete your work count off of your phone, especially if it's not a work issued phone as a means of creating a, a dividing line between your work life and your personal life. But it's really cool, this notion of um, being able to, um, in essence, uh, uh, flip a switch on the phone and turn off your work stuff or turn off your personal stuff for that matter if you want to be in work mode. And um, I love this. I think it's such a clever strategy. I mean, there are times when in high anxiety times at work, um, when I am tempted to get on my email over a weekend, when I really need to separate myself from my own uh, mental health, and also because I need a break to be more effective at work, I've actually deleted the work account off my phone over the weekend to not tempt myself to do that. I also strongly advise that, especially for teachers that have a problem drawing that line, just don't put your school stuff on on your phone, right? Make your phone a personal device as a means of, of, of trying to draw that line if you can't draw it for yourself. And I love this functionality. I think it's really smart, and I think it's a very savvy move on the part of Google. Uh, you're on uh, uh, mute, Dr. Farah. 
I'd like to tell some stories, but I'm going to ask you to recognize my miming mouth and hand gestures. <laughs> um, thank you. So I have several thoughts about this. Uh, number one, I have a friend who, and former colleague who uh, shifted over to the military and now his emails classified uh, security and he absolutely can't have it on his personal device and he can't do it outside of the office. And like, I just was visiting with him about that, about what an incredible gift it is and how he never imagined that kind of freedom. And so I just, I, I find that really interesting, but also probably instructive for us to think about. Um, I know for my wife, like, Keeping up on her work email via her phone when she's out at recess or all other, you know, all kinds of time when she's writing in the car, you know, is just she's doing it all the time. So I think that that's wellness and, and thinking about work life balance is hugely important. But for leaders out there who are perhaps the ones sending email out to employees and faculty and staff or formulating policies, you know, universities, I know when I was at Texas Tech, years ago, um, you know, they had a really great service. They called it Tech Announce. But for the kinds of announcements and broadcast stuff, it wouldn't just come to you as an email. Uh, you could opt in to receive the digest version. If you wanted to get them as they came out, you could. But good grief, who wants that? Anyway, that's a whole university. And that's a that's that's a bigger scale probably than a lot of our listeners who I'm thinking are probably with K-12 schools. But Information overload is real. Communications departments are certainly is trying to maintain really close awareness of parent, you know, overload and not wanting to send too much content. But, you know, who's looking out for the teachers? And, you know, I know when I stopped being tech director, we have four different divisions and we had four different lists, one for each one, plus the school list. And I was subscribed to all of them. My gosh, it could be just very overwhelming some days, just the quantity of messages that were sent to those lists. So anyway, it's something to think about. Uh, that's a good topic to engage, not only from a management standpoint. I just taught my fifth graders how to set up their email filters and, you know, filter Google notifications and Gmail into a separate box. I mean, I, I had kids almost hugging me, literally. They were so joyful, you know, some with like three and 400 emails and just moving those, you know, got them below a hundred. So that level is important in terms of management, but thinking about what we send out, um, there's a whole lot around that conversation. So glad to see Google doing that. Maybe we'll see Apple do that. The last quick thing is focus um, zones. Is that what they're called? Uh, have you played with those yet, Jason, on the iPhone with iOS 15? No. And the reason why is because um, I want to wait for the functionality to bake a little more because of health notifications, since mm -hmm. I track blood sugar with my phone and my watch for that matter. And I got a lot of warning messages when I updated iOS 15 that I want to know more about it before I do that. So I don't lose critical health notifications. Yeah. Right. Well, I think you can pretty much let whatever pass through you want, but the, the idea there is that, you know, your phone, and I'm going to have this, maybe I'll do this over the holiday break. Uh, your phone, for instance, can use GPS and automatically know, Hey, I'm, you know, not at school anymore. And it can change the notifications that get pushed through uh, when, when you're not, you know, either physically on campus or at time, you know, during the weekday or, or whatever. And it just, it's sort of like the do not disturb on steroids and you can do a lot of customization with it. So I have not played with it either, but it, it certainly is one of the features of iOS 15 that I think has really good implications for us on a wellness perspective. And again, thinking about boundaries and thinking about, you know, our own accessibility. 
I talked with a teacher, by the way, who had just asked kids to all email her their assignments for all of her sections. And, oh, my gosh, that is, yeah, that is just not a great recipe for mental health if you're having kids directly email you all their, their assignments, even if it's just for one or two things. Yep, absolutely. All right, what else from Google? Uh, well, I want to point out one other thing, and then, well, there's a lot of deeper topics. I might punt a couple of these to, to well, next week. Let me but... do the focus. I'll do, let me do the focus time real quick because right, that actually That's ties awesome. to what we were just doing. So, okay, this doesn't necessarily change your behavior, but it's really cool. Google now has a feature for Google Calendar called Focus Time, and if you have a goal, like I need to be writing more, you can set that goal in Google Calendar, and then it will find a time. You tell it how often you want to do it. And it will find a time on your calendar to book it and set that up and remind you about it. Now, I've had that going for about a week or so, and it really hasn't, you know, I haven't sat down and, and written at that specific time yet. Uh, or I mean, I think I did it once. But anyway, it it's tying into this idea of managing tasks, managing priorities, and and also using some you know, intelligent algorithms to look at your calendar and available time, assuming you've got the bulk of your stuff that you're doing in, in your life on your calendar, and then it's going to find time for you to do those things uh, and remind you. So um, Peggy's reminding us of the app Track My Subs, which is uh, one that she's using, I think, for subscriptions and trying to get a hold of those. So good geek of the week there. Well, let me cover one last article, and then uh, the the uh, I want to have a deeper conversation maybe next time about Chromebooks uh, because there's been a lot of hand wringing the last two weeks because of the decrease in in sales of Chromebooks. But uh, there is an article from Nine to Five Google on October 26th that says there is finally an Adobe Photoshop and an Adobe Illustrator available now on the web, which works just fine um, on Chromebooks. And um, I've only played with it for maybe a sum total of 90 seconds. And I do know from the articles, I am not an Adobe Power user. So I myself am not the person to put these through its paces, right? In fact, um, other than when I occasionally do some work in Illustrator, when I'm working in a, a vector image, like a logo, for example, I will sometimes uh, uh, use some of the advanced stuff, but um, so far from reviews I've, I've read about this is that it works pretty darn, darn well on Chromebooks. And if you're trying to be a Chrome OS only guy, like like I have been off and on over the last three or four years, um, it, it it's going to meet your general uh, uh, photo editing needs. It is not an app. It is a web-based property. But I actually think that's a very good thing because it's likely to work a lot better than it would otherwise. That's amazing. Um, you know, we we have a, a license, I think, for 500 Adobe Creative Cloud users. And, um, in you know, practicality, it's, you know, anybody on our faculty staff that want to use that and then high schoolers. But we've got some middle schoolers doing art and tech and that was one of the conversations about Chromebooks. We're like, well, what about Adobe? What about, you know, what kids are going to be able to use? So the idea of being able to use that in the browser, I think, is is wonderful. Um, we have used for a while. Let me see if I can get it. Um, and this <laughs> I have a web page of student authors at our school uh, and I can drop this link in a diff different web based image editing tools. Uh, Pixlr is the one that we have used the most. Mm -hmm. There's also Pixlr X. Uh, and then there's really powerful tools for removing backgrounds and making transparent PNGs. Um, 
So anyway, yeah, web-based. The maturity of the web, the power of HTML5 and web standards. Amazing. So that'll be interesting. It says, I think, in the article that that's still limited to Creative Cloud license holders. So you're going to need to have a license, I guess, for regular Photoshop to be able to use it on the web. Um, at least that's what it looks like to me. So I may actually check that out. I haven't used Photoshop for a long time because there's there are a lot of of other tools that can that can get me by, but that will be an exciting thing for the designers and Photoshop lovers among us. Yep, absolutely. Well, Wes, we're just a couple minutes before the top of the hour. Please share your geek of the week. All right, so I got two quick ones. Um, the first one is a uh, link to our slides for last night's Parent University. Uh, we actually had 76 parents register, which is unbelievable. And we had about half of those, you know, show up. Um, but this is a presentation that I did along with our student support team, our um, student support services, counselors, and uh, influencers are ginormous. It's incredible the power they wield and the ways in which, you know, many companies for marketing and advertising purposes have pivoted to really focus on social media influencers, uh, not only on YouTube, but definitely and more so on TikTok. Um, Instagram, really all of the platforms. So you can go ahead and check out those slides. And then the other one that I have is just kind of a motivational video that my wife found. Um, we've had a SpaceX mission. I think this is the third manned mission or I'm not saying that correctly, but the third one with folks on it, uh, with astronauts on it. Um, and it was supposed to go like Halloween night and it's been delayed twice. But um, this is the introductory uh, video with uh, Kayla Barron, who is a, um, I think she's a Naval Academy graduate. And then she was in one of the first females to be aboard submarines. And now she's an astronaut and she's commanding this mission. It is so inspiring. And I would just say never underestimate the power of sharing inspiring digital stories um, with students and, and with anybody. So check it out. How about you, Dr. Neifert? I'm sharing something that I just am starting this week. Um, I heard about this from some teachers in the local school district in the town I live in, and I did a little research, and I like what they had to say. Uh, the The organization is called Mindful Schools, and it is a, I think it's a nonprofit, but part of what they do is support uh, teachers and administrators to create schools that cultivate mindfulness. And for those of you that have discovered the power of things like meditation, uh, being present, living in the now, uh, and, and it's, it's wonderful benefits for mental health, which I have done. I am a fairly regular meditator. This is the school version of, of how that works. And so they do offer, um, a lot of pretty interesting free materials, including, uh, uh some research available on the importance of, 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 of helping students become more mindful. But, um, I've started taking, they have three courses available, uh, mindfulness foundations, mindfulness in the classroom. And then I believe they also have a, um, a school implementation, uh, clinical, uh, course you can take too. The courses do cost money. These are, uh, 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 it is a, a pay for service, but I started the first class this week, um, which I'm paying for myself in order to, um, uh, to really, I, I think both up my game personally with mindfulness. And then secondarily, I think there's something here in regards to my program, which delivers distance learning to students. Absolutely. All right. Well, I think we've done it. It's 50, yeah, 59 minutes and 10 seconds, so almost on the nose. 
Well, Wes, where can people find you then <laughs> if they want to connect with you after the show is over with? Find me on Twitter at WFryer or just visit westfryer.com. Uh, I've actually put a teaching portfolio up. I'm continuing to apply for some different assistant professor and other K-12 positions in various and sundry states around so far, just the United States. But anyway, you can check all that out at westfryer.com. How about you, Dr. Mike? I best place to find me is also Twitter, Tech Savvy Teach. Uh, I like to post uh, uh, some of the articles, actually, that I post or I talk about in a tech situation where I'll post there first. And I like to engage with people like Dr. Fryer on educational technology issues of the day. But this here is not Twitter. It's the EdTech Situation Room podcast. We are a once a week podcast uh, that broadcasts on Wednesday evenings at 8 p.m. Mountain Time, 9 p.m. I'm sorry, Central Time is where Dr. Fryer is located, and somewhere in the middle of the night if you want to catch us in Europe, although that will change by an hour uh, this coming Sunday with Daylight Savings Time. Uh, we'd love it if you could join us live. We'd love to have live viewers. You can hang out with Peggy, uh, our chat moderator, in the YouTube chat room. We're also live via Facebook as well. No word on whether or not uh, Facebook will continue to uh, host us now that they're known as Meta. But if you can't catch us live, you can always go to where Finder Podcasts are aggregated. I've yet to see an app that doesn't feature the EdTech Situation Room. You can download tiny MP3s from our website, edtechsr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at EdTechSR. We hope you have a great week. Stay safe, stay savvy, and we'll see you next time on the EdTech Situation Room. Have a great night. Good night, everybody.